Hello. Good morning. My name is David. Let me just get myself sorted. I ask your forbearance this morning. I also have the cold that seems that everyone else has. So if things are slightly foggier today than normal, you can blame me. That doesn't give you an excuse to fall asleep, though. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the story of Noah. Uh, such an extraordinary event in the history of your world, which you show that you will hold the world for judgment, you will bring the wicked to account, and today in which we see that you will save your people. We ask, please, as we read this next part of the story of Noah, as we consider the implications for our lives, that you would make us humble, humble enough to recognise when we need help, and humble enough to be able to ask for it. We ask especially that we would ask help of Jesus, your salvation from the coming wrath. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, let me add my welcome to Joe's. You've joined us in the middle of our Noah series. Hopefully you realise from the kids' spot and the kids' song. And let me recap briefly for you. I don't think that was a kids' song, actually. I think the adults got into it more than the kids, but... Let me recap last week for you really quickly. We saw last week that we live on borrowed time. We live on borrowed time. The end of the world is coming. We read that as God held the world in Noah's day for judgment, so he will do again. The wicked will be called to account. If you remember last week, it's not fair. Well, actually it is. God is fair and he is just and he will bring about judgment. That was where we ended up last week. And the question was, do we live with urgency, knowing that that is the age we live in? Do we live with the urgency of knowing that at any moment Jesus could return to judge us and to judge those around us? Now, where we finished last week, and I hope that this was kind of what left you intrigued, was, well, if judgment is coming and all of us are wicked, then is there any hope for salvation? Was there any hope for Noah when God flooded the world? Now, we kind of know there was, but pretend you didn't know that for a moment, just so that I can have some sort of a surprise. Was there any salvation for Noah? God was going to destroy the world. And if he's going to do it again, is there any salvation for us? Is there any hope? And what is that hope? Now I'm going to read through the rest of the story of Noah, at least chapters 7 and 8. Uh, I'm going to go fairly quickly because, again, I'm assuming you're familiar with the story and you can read with your eyes faster than I can out loud. But by all means, follow along. I'll make some comments as we go. If you see things that stand out and are surprising, then jot them down. Here we go, Genesis chapter 7. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark. So he's built an ark, it took him 100 years to do it. God said, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and the third wheel. 
And two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate. And also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights. I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. Did you notice that? Seven of every kind. We used to say the animals came in by pairs, right? Two of each kind. Well, no, there are seven of each kind of clean animal and two of each kind of unclean animal. As someone pointed out this morning, you get one lonely one. You get three pairs come in, and then the Nigel, who's just kind of, the the lonely elephant, the sad cow. I don't know, whatever the clean and unclean animals are. In fact, they're probably both unclean. But you notice as well that there are clean and unclean animals. Where does that come from? I mean, we, we haven't had the law of Moses yet when we hear about this distinction between clean and unclean. In many ways, the story of Noah is a, is a prototype of the story of Israel. A lot of the things that happen to Noah happen in various ways more explicitly to Israel and then, of course, more explicitly again to Jesus. All right, verse 5, Noah did all the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds, of all the creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. After the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. And you notice that the animals came to Noah. That stood out to me. I always thought that he had to go hunting. Right? The, first, the first ten years was building the ark. The next 90 was trying to catch that last little butterfly. You just can't get that one, right? Trying to build the trap for that pesky little rabbit that we couldn't get. No, the animals, God brought them. They came to him. Rain fell. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in verse 11, on the 17th day, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that very day Noah and his sons Shem, Ham and Japheth together with his wife and the wives of his three sons entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, livestock according to their kind, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, every bird according to its kind. Everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of everything, every living thing as God had commanded Noah. And then God, the Lord, shut him in. I don't know if this is some sort of miraculous, the, the, the famous hand from the book of Daniel that we saw last year. Maybe that same hand came down, grabbed the door and slammed it shut. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, verse 17. As the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth. All the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind, everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils, died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals, the creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. God spoke 
truth when he said to Noah, I'm going to wipe out the world. And God spoke truth when he said to Noah, I can save you. And God spoke truth when he said to Noah, build an ark and I will make it float. Chapter 8, God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. He sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. The springs of the deep, the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down and on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. On the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened the window he had made in the ark, sent out the raven. It kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Bad choice of a bird to send. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. I take it because doves have to land. They can't just keep flying indefinitely. The dove could find no place to set its feet because there was water over all the surface of the earth, so it returned to Noah in the ark. Reached out his hand and took the dove, brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited another week, seven more days, and again sent out the dove. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Noah knew the water had receded. He waited seven more days, sent the dove out, and this time it did not return to him. That's still a symbol of peace. you know. The, the olive branch, the dove... Although strange that we take a symbol that comes from the end of judgment as the symbol of peace. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, a year later, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah removed the covering from the ark, saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. And God said to Noah, come out of the ark. You, your wife, your sons, their wives, bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. There is the salvation that God brought Noah. Do you remember last week we ended with judgment? Can God save? Yes. Yes, he can. And what an extraordinary way to save. Did you notice what the thing was that saved Noah? I mean, we say that it's the ark. But as we read in 1 Peter, actually, it's the water that saved Noah. As the water rose, it kept him afloat. The very same thing that brought condemnation to the world brought salvation to Noah. Why was Noah saved? What was it about Noah that God said, I'm going to save you? but I'm going to destroy everything else. Well, we get some hints uh, that there's a number of ways that Noah is described for us. Uh, chapter 6, verse 22, Noah is described, well, it says Noah did everything just as God commanded him, described as obedient. Uh, chapter 7, verse 5, Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Back in chapter 6, in verse 8, Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 6 and verse 9, he is described as a righteous man. Or if you remember to Peter again from last week, he was described as a preacher of righteousness. Now, was he perfect? Is that why? Is that what it means that he was righteous, that he was blameless amongst the people of his time? Well, no. 
Noah wasn't perfect. We'll see next week very clearly that that's the case. The Bible is very clear in saying that everyone is a sinner. So what was it about Noah that means he was considered righteous? Well, I take it that Noah's righteousness was the same as Abraham's righteousness. How was Abraham's righteousness described as? He believed God. God came to Noah and he said, Noah, I'm going to wipe out the world. And Noah said, okay, I believe you. And God said, the way for you to be saved is to, for the next century, build the boat in the middle of nowhere. And Noah said, okay, I believed you. And he did as God commanded. Gather food for a whole year for you, your family, and all the living creatures I bring you. And Noah did. See, Noah had that thing that we, we call it faith. I mean, that's, that's the word we use. That's a kind of a religious word. A better one, perhaps, is trust. Noah trusted God. He believed what God had to say and he acted upon it. He entrusted himself into God's hands. In the face of coming destruction, he sought God's salvation. Noah listened when God said to him, You are weak, Noah. On your own, you won't make it. But let me tell you where salvation is to be found. Well, God saved Noah from the judgment in his day. Now, we know that judgment is coming again. Does God still save? And if so, who? Who is he going to save? Is there going to be the one guy like Noah with one family? Is there a bunker somewhere? I mean, this time it won't be water. This time it's going to be fire. Should we be doing... Anyone watched, um, what's it called, Doomsday Preppers? Anyone seen that show? Yeah, yeah, a couple of you. You're like, yeah, this is the best show ever. It's these crazy Americans, mostly, who spend tens of thousands of dollars building bunkers and kitting them out with years' worth of food. And, of course, because they're Americans, they have arsenals of, of weaponry. And it's a fantastic show. Is that what we should be doing? Right? Should we just, all of our money, get poured into preparation for some sort of hazmat suits, fire retardant suits? I mean, it's going to come with fire. Is it that there is some sort of secret ark where 144,000 people will fit and that's all and you've got to be one of them? What is the salvation that God has in store for us? Let's turn to 1 Peter 3, that second passage that was read for us. 1 Peter chapter 3, page 1178, if you've got a pew Bible. Because as it turns out, God had an even bigger plan for salvation than a football-sized ark, football stadium-sized ark. Football-sized ark would be, you'd fit a rabbit maybe. Football stadium-sized ark. See, his plan for salvation was so much bigger. It wasn't for one man and his family alone. And it wasn't found in some sort of contraption to rescue us. If the problem is our wickedness and the consequence that our wickedness deserve is death, then what we need is someone to die for us. What we need is someone to take our place. And so 1 Peter 3, we read these words. Verse 18, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
to bring you to God. See, our salvation isn't an ark over water. We need, we need scorched earth. Do you know what scorched earth is? Scorched earth? If there's a fire coming, the safest place to be is where it has already burnt. I don't think that's actually the scorched earth policy. scorched earth policy was that they just destroyed everything in their path, right? But I'm, I'm renaming it because it sounds nice. The safest place to be in, when you're facing a fire is where the fire has already burned. For it won't burn there again. The safest place to be when God's judgment and destruction comes upon wicked people is in Jesus who has already faced that judgment. The righteous one, the perfect one, God himself died for sin. The righteous for us, the wicked, the unrighteous to bring us to God. Peter describes it in this way, connecting Jesus to Noah. Down in verse 20, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. But this water now symbolizes baptism that saves you also. It's not the removal of dirt. Baptism isn't about some sort of magic water or holy water. Or it's not even necessarily about having a good bath. Certainly not the way we baptise people, a little sprinkle. I mean, that's not going to clean anyone, right? It's not about the dirt being removed from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death and resurrection of Jesus, symbolised in the baptism that we preached, that we preach, is where salvation is found. To be united to the one who has already gone through it, died and raised back to new life, seated at the right hand of God. To be in him is to be safe. Now, if I leave you with nothing else this morning, I want to leave you with this impression. Jesus is trustworthy. In the face of coming wrath, the single safest place your life can be is in Jesus' hands. He won't let you down. He won't betray you. He won't break the trust that you place in him. It won't turn out that he's incapable of doing what is promised, that only a few will be saved and the rest will miss out. Jesus is eminently trustworthy. He alone is our hope in the face of the coming wrath. The judgment has already been poured out on him so that we might have salvation. We need help in the face of God's judgment and we need it from Jesus. Let me finish with three implications. And the first one is slightly oblique, but you'll see where we're getting. Are you somebody who is able to accept help? I want you to think about yourself for a moment, what happens in life, how you go about doing things. Are you someone who is able to accept help? Who is open enough about their weakness and their vulnerability and their need for other people to know that you need help in the first place? But when someone says, can I, may I, how about I? Can you say yes? Now this goes, I mean our culture is, is the, the me culture. 
Um, it begins with our castle, right? Our home, our fortress, our domain, within which I am the king, within which I am self-sufficient. We are wealthy enough that we think we can pay whatever we can't do ourselves. We have the wealth, we have the health, we have the attitude. I can do it. We, we, we don't like displaying weakness. We don't like showing that we are ever in need. And so to acknowledge that I need help is to say I am weak. I can't do it on my own. Are you able to accept help? Or does pride stand in the way? I, and and this, this is me. I'm, I'm not describing you. I'm describing me. This, this facade of, of capability. I can do anything. You throw it at me, I'll do it. No, I don't, we don't need it. We can manage, we can cope. We haven't slept for a week, but we'll still get through it, right? I mean, it's that sort of a, I can do everything on my own. I don't need help. But really, it's just pride. It's me wanting to put up this face of, I can do anything, rather than acknowledging weakness, acknowledging need. Can you accept help? That's the first one, because the second one is this. In the face of God's wrath, every one of us needs help. And so have you accepted God's help? Have you accepted the offer that God holds out, saying, in the face of what is to come, will you let Jesus die in your place? Will you entrust yourself to him? Will you accept his help? And now thirdly, because I'm speaking predominantly to Christians, having entrusted yourself to Jesus, do you live out that trust? No, I could have said to God, yep, yep, okay, flood's coming, yep, got to build an ark, fantastic, yep, yep, ah, that's nice, where's my deck chair, where's my beer? I'm just going to kick back and uh, watch the fireworks, right? I mean, that's not really believing. That's not really trusting. That's saying one thing and doing something else. That's called being a hypocrite. Now, if you proclaim, if you preach, if you say that you trust in Jesus, you've accepted his help, do you live the right way? Do you live with Jesus as your saviour? Knowing that having him as your saviour also means having him as your Lord. Let me show you one last passage. Hebrews, Hebrews 11 and 12. Hebrews 11 is a great passage. Uh, it's, a, it's a chapter full of the great heroes of the Old Testament. These examples of faith that are held up to us. And Noah is one of them. So Hebrews 11 and verse 7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, right? I mean, it's going to be a hundred years before the flood comes. When warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world, became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. See, one man believing and trusting in God showed everyone else up to not be doing the same. And his trust was counted to him as righteousness. Having an example such as Noah, then, we read in Hebrews 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Noah being one of them, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For a hundred years, 
after God told him the flood would come, Noah had to live in this world obeying God. Anyone a hundred yet? Right, so for just, just for that one segment of Noah's life was longer than ours are, and yet he lived obeying God, living for him, trusting his word. Now we are called upon to do the same. If we are trusting in Jesus, we are to live in the light of that. Casting off sin, removing the things that meant Jesus had to die for us in the first place and fixing our eyes upon him. Jesus' resurrection can be ours. Isn't that great news? As Noah found life after the flood, so too there will be life for those who are in Jesus after the fire. The judgment has been poured out on him that we might have life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for Noah. We thank you for this extraordinary thing that you did in the world. Thank you that you saved him. You saved one man because he trusted in you. Father, thank you for the example that that is to us, both of your mercy as you reach out to save us sinners from the coming judgment and Noah's example of someone who lives by faith in you. Father, please help us to be people who can accept help. Remove from us the pride that says we are enough. Give us the humility to be able to recognise with one another in the small ways of life our need and most importantly with you the extraordinary need that we are in. Father, may we put our trust in Jesus, seeking our salvation in him and in him alone. Father, having done that, may we live for you. Amen.